The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. John's finally figured out the live start. Cold intro? That poured like uh, an ancient Lodi pour, baby. I'm trying to do quick math, but I can't. That poured from 1886. That was an old pour. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers with Sam, Bart, Brian, and Greg LaFollette, co-owner of Marshall Wines out near Occidental, fresh from the fields today, huh? Yep. Excellent. And Randy Caparoso, you are a freelance journalist and photographer, also from Lodi, right? Yes. Welcome, man. Uh, It's all about ancient vines from Lodi today, huh? Yes. That's a good thing. Randy, just step right up to that microphone and be as close as you can. And here we go. Well, okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, as I think it, Randy's still trying to figure out how he got here. And right. I don't mean how he physically got here. Kind of like, wh- why did they call me? Right, right. You know, I, I don't know. Well, we're just getting to know each Correct. other and so you and that's probably, a good and that's a good enough reason to have you you probably don't know that i actually work in the restaurant industry for over 30 years you know as a started as a, you know washing dishes and yeah. busing tables and then i became a waiter you know uh wearing tuxedos and doing caesar salads at the table and where was this and, and this is all in honolulu which is my hometown okay. and awesome. then i became a sommelier and back in 1978 was when I got my first sommelier job, and I've been working full-time with wine ever since. I met a chef along the way named Roy Yamaguchi. We ended up opening about 20. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We right. ended up opening 28 of those restaurants from Tokyo to New York, and, and, and then I retired, and in and, and, and about 2010, I moved to Lodi in amongst old vines, and I moved there to be among old vines. It just simply captivated me, and I've been there ever since now, 13 years. And I wrote a book called Lodi, uh, uh, exclamation point, uh, the, defi- the definitive guide in history of America's largest wine-growing region. So... Um, you fellas mentioned that you want this to be educational. A lot of people, M- moderately educated, yeah, still need to be, <laughs> probably still need to be educated on the fact, uh, little known fact, um, that Lodi is actually the largest wine growing region in the United States. It produces more grapes than all of Napa Valley and Sonoma County combined. When you think of it, it com- produces more wine grapes than all of Washington State and Oregon State combined, plus another wow. 25%. Wow. And so it's a big, large ocean of grapes there. When you walk into any store in the United States or or you can be in Denmark or Frankfurt or uh, uh, Shanghai, and you'll see Lodi wines. And, uh, and Lodi does produce... The wines that Napa and Sonoma used to uh, grow mostly, uh, it wasn't long ago, maybe 40, 50 years ago, where uh, a winery is like 
E and J Gallo took more than half the grapes from Sonoma County and Napa Valley. Uh, they, they don't do that now, obviously. Uh, uh, but now they uh, get their grapes from so minute, uh, Lodi. So, right. But do you, so you're saying there was a time where Gallo actually purchased. I, I just want people to understand what you're saying. It's 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 oh, that's ma- a fact. it's a big magnitude that like half the grapes here were bought by Gallo. More and, than and half. It was smaller. Well, more than half. Okay. And it was smaller than granite, but that's still, that's a massive amount of grapes going to one. Uh, well, that, those were the 50s, 60s, yeah. and uh, really going into the 70s, of course. And the reason why, of course, they sourced from Napa and Sonoma was because those are great wine regions. And things shifted, obviously, in the 80s and 90s where, uh, you know, land values and vineyards, uh, uh got a little bit higher and uh, more competitive. And so Lodi is the region now where they get their wine grapes for the same reason, because it's a good, dependable wine region. It's Mediterranean climate, and it has extremely grape-friendly soils, uh, um, very unusual soils, in fact. Uh, all We're going to taste Zinfandels and Carignan today and Sinsalt. We're having Sinsalt right now, and they come from a... a uh, the original Appalachian uh, in Lodi called McCullamy River. And McCullamy is actually defined by a sandy loam alluvium called Toke Sandy Loam. And it's typically in all parts of the Appalachian, 80 to 100 feet deep. Now I'm talking about sandy loam, very rich and fertile because it is an alluvium. Uh, it's all... Uh, all came down from the river. It's pulverized uh, uh, granite mm-hmm. and extremely sandy. Not one piece of gravel or rock in it going down 100 feet deep. If you can imagine that, and then you might understand why Lodi is so great friendly. It has been since the 1850s. Uh, um, and up until the uh, 70s, their major grape was a, a table grape called Toke. The only problem with flame toque was it had a seed in it. And so, as you know, by the 70s and 80s, consumers were done with grapes with seeds in it. I mean, just like you can't find a watermelon with a seed these days. It's just, those things don't exist. You know, the, the scientists have sort of wiped them off. And so, but Lodi at that time transitioned to wine grapes because that's when Robert Mondavi went out to Lodi in 79 and founded Woodbridge because he wanted to produce everyday wines, not just ultra premium wines. And uh, Mondavi actually graduated from Lodi High School, so he was familiar with the region. And uh, Wait, that's a little piece of yeah. history that yeah. needs not glossing over that Robert Mondavi graduated from Lodi High School. Yes, well, his father, uh, uh, Cesare, yeah, in old timers remember the label C.K. Mondavi. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. all in tribute to Cesare and his wife Rosa and two sons and two daughters. They all moved to Lodi in 1921, bought a little house in the center of town because they heard at that time um, uh, grape packing was big business. They came down from Minnesota. And uh, so he has established a business, was very successful. All the kids went to Stanford. And, uh, uh, and eventually, of course, the two sons, uh, uh, Peter and Robert, convinced dad to buy a, that defunct winery 
called Charles Crew <laughs> in Napa Valley. And so the sons uh, um, moved to Napa, operated Napa until they had a famous fist fight. And Robert went off and started his own winery. I believe that was in 66. In the meantime, though, Cesare and Rosa lived in downtown Lodi till the end of their days. Uh, yeah. But they were officially donors until they died right. uh, of Charles Krug. And then they went to Peter. I think, what, he lived to like 101 or something. And so Charles Krug is still in the hands of the uh, Mondavi uh, family, which is which is amazing when you think and of it. And more than you can say about Robert yeah. Mondavi. So Lodi has a great history. And, uh, uh, you know, and the Mondavi was cognizant of the fact that you can grow Cabernet, you can grow Sauvignon Blanc, you can grow Merlot, all these grapes uh, uh, for uh, just a small percent of the price that it was getting to be in uh, places in Napa Valley. And so so that's the modern day story. He was a big influence on the farmers in Lodi. And again, I mentioned, I was, I, that was I'm explaining that roundabout history where you know, where uh, wine became very popular in the 1980s. And so that was when the tr transition in Lodi went from table grapes to uh, wine grapes because that was needed at the time. We were all around in the 19, what, you were at Kenwood, right? Right. And we were all around. I was a sommelier. I my, made my first trip to Napa in Sonoma in 1979. And, uh, and so I'm lucky enough to have, you know, also lived and worked through those eras, uh, the modern day era, I guess, of California and seeing the growth along the way, met this fellow here, Greg LaFollette, um, and, uh, you know, the original winemakers at Flowers and then uh, Tandem and then yeah, <laughs> and, and Marcia, Mar now Marshall. Yeah. Um, Remember the amazing thing was, you know, and back in the 19, even in the 1980s, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the 70s, no one would ever imagine you can grow a wine grape south of Sonoma Town. I mean, it was viewed as, oh, physically impossible to ripen a grape in what was now called Sonoma Coast or, yeah. or Sebastopol. Yeah. Sebastopol was all apple trees right. and things like that. But no one could imagine that... You, the thought was if you put you could put a grapevine there but it'll never ripen and so uh and, and those are different times and it's it's hard to imagine that that time existed you know the idea that oh you can't grow a grape in sonoma coast i mean that's, that's so, crazy. so so call it call it you know 1986 87 i took one of my first classes at santa rosa jc rich thomas teaching the class and and being from Petaluma, I said, how come there's no vineyards? There's only like one vineyard in Petaluma. And Richard would go, you can't grow anything down there. He goes, they tried pre-prohibition and there's a reason why they never put it back. Yeah, right. right? And yeah. and that's kind of an interesting concept because now yeah. look at all of them out on Lake Bill well, look at, well, first of all, there wasn't the concept of Pinot Noir probably is better in a colder climate and so is Chardonnay. But there also was, it, you know, people didn't know how to grow grapes. California Sprawl was the name of the game all the way up into the 70s. And yeah, nothing will ripen under a dense canopy like that. And so, yeah, so viticulture had to change and winemaking thought process had to change. And consumers had to change. Everything had to change. And, and that... And that didn't happen overnight, but when you think about it, 
it happened pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 So, so now I'm in Lodi and, and I'm comfortable there. I, after working in, in opening up restaurants in New York and Chicago and Texas and, and, and always specializing in wine, I always wanted to live in a wine region. And, you know, I can go to bed and not hear a, a car driving by, uh, you know, just you and, and the crickets. And and I found a place like that in, in Lodi. And the uh, exciting thing for me is even though grapes have been planted there since the 1850s, it's actually considered up and coming. Even though it's the largest wine growing region easily in all of California and the United States, it's considered new <laughs> and that's because a lot of people just aren't aware and and here's the thing we're going to taste uh four wines today and three of them uh are, are varietals and they come from vineyards planted in 1886 1889 and 1900 all on their own rootstocks because of that sandy soil and you guys went out to Lodi and, and you maybe saw some of those old vines and they they do like they do at some point stop to look like vines, which are like creepy, crawly things, more like little bonsai trees or, or in some cases, large bonsai trees with large trunks, very long spurs, sometimes longer than the trunks, uh, 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 typically like the royal tea, the mm -hmm. spurs are all longer than trunks. And, uh, and so what you got is you got these deep roots going down 50 feet and you got these tremendous sap flow, rich earth, extremely well uh, um, drained, so to speak, because that's the name of the game with grapevines. You want richness, but you want well drained. And, and so these vines are extremely healthy at and over 130 years old and uh i and so a lot of people think oh old vine that means very low yield and very concentrated uh uh wines and you know that is sort of a misunderstanding if if a if a grapevine even over 100 years old was producing very little and you're not making any money and so that vine would not exist these grapevines exist for over 50 75 over 100 years because they're extremely productive well, and yeah and so this whole idea that oh it's you know extremely low yield and all that it's kind of bullshit yeah uh just a misunderstanding and then you also notice that oh it, when these wines get vines get old they don't produce concentrated monolithic wines they produce actually very fine, delicate, transparent, nuanced, <coughs> delineated wines. And that's another reason why they exist. If they produce shitty wines, they would be long gone. If they produce wines with no character, they would be long gone. If they didn't produce grapes to a, a, a point where you can make some money off them, they would be long gone. And so these vines are existing over a hundred years uh, uh, because they fulfill all those requirements of a really good old vine uh, 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 growth. Yeah. And, and that is the story of it, folks. Uh, um, you know, if you really want to understand old vines, uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a nuanced thing. Well, and can, can yeah, we talk about that a little bit? You know, these vineyards, 
survived both Prohibition and the Flame Tokai, you know, grape era. <laughs> and then the transition to, you know, California Sprawl and, and Cabernet and Chardonnay dominating the market. Phylloxera. Uh, and Phylloxera and all, and all these things. Um, You're impervious to Phylloxera. Yeah. But, but Phylloxera doesn't live right, in the sand. Right, the sand doesn't in the sand. sand. Well, it's there. Now. It's just... Not a, not, not it doesn't proliferate. Right. So, but I mean, specifically, the sort of cultural influences, both Prohibition and the Flame Tokai right. era, how did these, how did they survive that? Just because they were still producing good wine? Well, were they, they selling, they, you know, were the Bechtold selling to Well, you mentioned Prohibition. Wine? That's right. a misunderstanding, too, because I mentioned the Mandavis came over to Lodi at the beginning of Prohibition right, in 1921 for a very specific reason, because there was a big boom and, and grape growing. And, and in fact, at that time, the, the growers in Lodi were hastily planting as much wine grapes as they could because, you know, there was a, a, a certain part of the uh, Volstead Act that allowed every household to produce up to 200 gallons of their own wine. So overnight, when they banned the commercial sale of alcohol, which of course we know didn't prevent people from right. making it and drinking it anyway, but theoretically, don't work. theoretically it was against the law, but overnight uh, thousands of Americans from coast to coast became wine home winemakers. Wine well, no, and a, so they yeah. needed wine grapes. Yeah. And so in Lodi had the trains, uh, train stops, you know, and uh, that was one of my that, questions. That could get it over to Chicago and uh, Grand Central Station, New York, all those places. I was wondering if the if the train tracks were there before or after grape. They production. they went in in the eighteen sixties. Okay. And so uh, um, and the transcontinental railroad one was that finished in the 1870s 1865 uh, something 87. i didn't know this 1870s. was going to be and a so yeah history test yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> no well that had yes. a lot to do with no, uh, uh, the whole thing you know well, all those places there, that, well that's how rossi that, ranch survived right. is they would take the tr the grapes down to the kenwood train station and load it up and it'd end up in new york right they would that's where the wine went too and they would you know they're still making wine during prohibition for the church at a and some of ranch. those grapes went from Lodi into Napa Valley, which is right. why you, you have a Lodi uh, uh, Avenue in Napa, you know, with, with the little train stop there. Right. Um, yeah. So where there's tracks, you can get <laughs> right. grapes. So so to kind of bring this around, um, Greg, when you were at Davis uh -huh. um, studying, what was your knowledge of Lodi as far as grapes? What was your knowledge of Lodi old vines? Like, was that even on your radar? Um, oh, uh, uh, so that's, let's start with that with you. Okay. Well, uh, my family uh, were uh, Dust Bowl Okies. They came out to Oklahoma uh, doing migrant farm work, and then they started doing farming themselves. They were dairy farmers. But uh, in what, what part of the state? Holsteins? In, in, uh, Holstein, well, all different kinds. You have to have like a, a brown Swiss or two to get the butterfat content up in your in your uh, milk, so it, you can sell it for more. Such a Petaluma question. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, my family's dairy farmers, but uh, uh, yeah, so Central Valley, and so I was aware of the Lodi area. My uh, dad uh, graduated from Hillmar High School, just a little south of there, and 
but this is a very little known fact that <clears throat> the very first wine that we made out at Flowers was a Lodi-based wine called the Perennial. And I think they still make Perennial to this day. But uh, we had bought these beautiful uh, redwood fermenters. They were brand new and we didn't want to put our precious Pinot in them. So uh, I talked to uh, the Moore Fry Ranch and got, uh, at that time, it was maybe 85-year-old Zinfandel. And we, f we did a semi-carbonic fermentation in those redwood vats so that we could get the, the woodiness out of it. And we were just going to bulk that off. And lo and behold, it made really good wine. So what we did was the first perennial, and for all the years that I was there, always was at least half Lodi grapes from the more fry old vines infidel. That's that's a small trivia that maybe the flowers folks don't want you to know, but I, I mean <laughs> I'm gonna say to all you hipster winemakers out there. Right. You know <laughs> semi carbonic and right. redwood vats. And you probably weren't born. <laughs> uh what year was that? Oh well let's see that was uh ninety seven. So uh Okay. We were making wine uh, a couple of years before then, but that's when the winery was built and yeah. first, and right. we had to get grapes to put in there. And, and you did say redwood tanks. Yes, those were redwood tanks. Were those some of the first first new redwood take tanks being the ordered? Last of the new, the yeah, last of the new, the last yeah, of the new old redwood. Tanks. I actually had to find an old guy to make new tanks because right. uh, people just weren't doing it anymore. And in fact, I was also using dairy tanks. William Selium still uses them, but mm. after I left uh, Flowers pretty quickly, uh, those redwood tanks and the and the uh, dairy tanks got sold off. And in fact, uh, I still use some of those redwood tanks that we used up at Flowers originally. And I think yeah. the redwoods got sold to Deerfield Ranch here in Sonoma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I love those old redwood tanks. Oh, yeah. You can still see, like, you know, a forest of them, like, at Par wineries like Parducci. Yeah. It's just, they're just amazing. Well, and uh, Joel Peterson is using them for. If you go into the Bedrock Winery, there's a bunch of them lined yeah, up yeah. For, so, yeah. for Once in Future. Once in Future, yeah. 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 And those were old Ravenswood tanks that he took with him. Right. So, yeah, same so sort of deal. Take, you know, buy the tanks, leave the winery, the winery gets sold, buy the tanks back for right. way less than so, you bought yeah, them the first time. I did that, yeah. <laughs> right. So, right. so to go back to, so then what, how else was like Lodi? Uh, I mean, well, I guess you were very aware of the old vine, old vines, um, but but did you continue to work with that fruit then, or was that when you kind of started really just kind of concentrating on Pinot and Chard? Well, I was mostly doing Pinot and Chard at the time because I my postgraduate work was on how Burgundian winemaking techniques affect mouthfeel, and I think uh, you attended one of those uh, uh, the, the UC Davis rave. Yeah, I re was recent advances in viticulture and enology yeah. but at that time it's definitely not like the raves that i went to no no <laughs> uh but it could have been in fact uh, the those french guys really knew how to drink at the uh, speaker parties before because once every other year we'd have a debate uh on pinot and chardonnay and once every other year it would be in uh the united states once every other year in uh burgundy and uh so uh, there was a lot of information being disseminated. And I knew, because I'd studied Pinot and Chardonnay, I knew where the bodies were buried. I, I knew that it's 
Pinot Noir is not called the heartbreak grape for no reason. You know, and I knew there was no way in hell I was going to be crazy enough to actually make Pinot Noir. I'd studied it and I knew how difficult it was going to be. Uh, but I kind of get got pulled almost kicking and screaming back into the world of Pinot and Chard. Everywhere I went around the world, they'd always say, well, what about this? And what about that with Pinot and the Chardonnay? And so finally, I, I, I basically threw my hands up in the air and I said, Pino, take me, I'm yours. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I spend a lot less money now on uh, uh, things like therapy and stuff like that. It's a lot easier. <laughs> but uh, I've always had a soft spot in my head for, uh, for Lodi fruit ever since those early days. And it always kept coming back to me. Uh, time and again, the Lodi would show up on my doorstep and uh, so same kind of things with Pinot. I finally embraced my uh, <clears throat> my predilection for these Lodi areas. And in fact, uh, there was this book called, uh, uh, Steve Heimoff wrote a book called like the, the New yeah. Winemakers of America or something like that. And each winemaker had a chapter and uh, Steve would ask, uh, the winemaker at the end, uh, the same question. Um, if you were to make wine in Lodi, would you elevate the region? And uh, and Marco Bear actually said, no, you got to be kidding. And it, it's, you can buy it on Amazon. You can read it. And, and Steve said, no, no, I, I'm serious. He goes, well, of course, if I made wine in Lodi, I would elevate the, but he called it the outer Siberia of winemaking. And, <clears throat> and when, Steve Heimoff asked me that question uh, for the end of my chapter. I said, well, well, I already do work in Lodi and I love Lodi. The people there are very real and genuine. They're farmers, they're like me. And I, I love making Lodi grapes. They help make me better. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and Mark and I haven't spoken since then, by the way. <laughs> so, well, I, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding and there's still a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of people still think uh, Lodi is somewhere near Bakersfield. Right. You know, it, it takes a few hours to drive from Lodi right. to Bakersfield. We're a long ways from that. And a few degree days yeah. difference. Uh, and also. folks, we're closer to Sacramento, which, as you know, is, is a pretty lush place. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, the way I always think of Lodi is it's just the other end of Highway 12. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know how it you can be from Lodi and drive and not leave. You know, you have to make some left and right turns. But you know, Lodi all the way to Sebastopol. It's all the same highway. Right. Right. It's, it's, there's, it's there's on definitely the way a, to, a the, vein. Uh, to the Amador County in yeah. the Sierra right. foothills. Right. It's uh, uh, except it's it's the flatter area in between. <laughs> but like I said, with that, those soils that are, are just amazing. And so uh, can we talk about climate, this specific wine? Because well, we have some great. So this, this is Senso. And, and so Senso is your your quintessential uh, Mediterranean grape. You know, it's the grape of uh, southern France. And so this comes from a vineyard. Again, it was planted in 1886. And uh, um, it was planted at the at the request of a winery called El Pinal, which it, which was a wine uh, started as a nursery in Stockton. Uh, I, I believe it was established in around <coughs> 1855. And then uh, about three years later, they established a winery and then they started contracting low dye growers because even though they were in Stockton, they knew that the richer soils uh, were in Lodi and, and there were more farmers there. So, and so this vineyard used to go to El Pinal all the way up to Prohibition. 
And then for many, many years, it went to hardly anyone. It went mostly to home winemakers. And here's the thing. It was called the grapes that when they came from the nursery in Stockton, uh, it was uh, uh, labeled as Black Malvoisie, M-A-L-V-O-I-S-I-E. And, and so that unknown to everyone was actually the working name for Sanso. It's just that people actually didn't discover that. And you're not going to believe it, but this is typical California wine industry until 2004. <laughs> it's just like no one knew where Zinfandel came from, right? Until the seventies, <laughs> and no one, and and we had two types of Gamay grapes that weren't even Gamays, <laughs> you know, that everyone bottled as Gamay, Napa Gamay, or Gamay Bo Beaujolais, and you know that this is so so Napa, and, and of course all of California used to think Petit Syrah was the same grape as Syrah. And believe it or not, it wasn't that long ago <laughs> when people did think that. And of course, we bottled Chardonnay as Pinot Chardonnay, thinking it was part of the Pinot family. Uh, so there's a lot of screwy things in the industry, and there was the screwy things about this Senso. And so they didn't realize it was in the ground until uh, Kay Bogart at the UC Davis had it identified. And the day after, uh, people like Randall Graham and Bonnie Dune were rushing up to low die to get as much as they could because it was like, oh my God, not only is there Sanso in the ground, what you say is dry farm Sanso that's been there since 1886. That's insane. And not only that, super healthy fruit, amazing. So this, I don't think this is much different than working with Pinot Noir and you can, uh, you can tell me that, but because it's like Zinfandel and Lodi, it's these are uh, relatively thinner skin, and so they're very delicate and transparent. They make soft tannin wines, but extremely spicy and again delineated. Uh, you tell yeah. Me. All right. Well, uh, the way I make this wine, I make it under what are called the uh, uh, look Nate the Lodi Native Society under their rules, which is basically the ingredients are grapes. You, uh, you, you add some SO2 later on, but you don't add anything else. Water, acid, sugar, nothing. Yeah. That's that's all it comes from. It. We have a Lodi native group that where you can't do anything. <laughs> and and like how big a group is that? And oh, it's oh, at the most, it's, it's only been about nine winemakers okay. okay, at the cool. most. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> when I first uh, saw this fruit, I, I actually knew I wasn't going to be getting it because it is the world's oldest Senso. And a lot of the world's oldest of any kind of vines are usually no longer in Europe because of phylloxera, but because of the sandy soil, there it is. Uh, and um, I was actually working uh, with the Lodi Wine Grape Association uh, teaching best practices. And <clears throat> the owner of the Bechtold Vineyard at that time offered me for free 1.3 tons of the oldest Zinfandel in the area, the Royal Tea Vineyard, which we're going to taste. And uh, that turned out so good that a couple of years later, he offered me uh, for purchase, of course, at this time, because I felt guilty about taking grapes for free from farmers, uh, one ton of the Senso, and that was in 2019. So this is a very new varietal for me, but it has a lot of Pinot sensibility to it. And uh, in fact, uh, was it? Elliot, who said that uh, my Zinfandel tasted like a, 
Russian River Pinot winemaker made it. So this is kind of the same way. It's it's light in texture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it does have that compliment uh, slap you in the back of the head. Right. <laughs> so uh, this has like some what the French would call savage et animal, uh, savage and animal. It's got some smoked meats, roasted venison. There's no new oak in it, but it's got uh, that this feral visceral quality that my wife calls sex in a bottle <laughs> and as, as long as she w likes wines like this i'll keep making them for her yeah. till the cows come home the, but, but this also has a, a quality of sensor that you don't find in all sensors uh which is a a, a very pronounced uh, kitchen spice quality you know so there's you know traces of that those brown spices like clove <coughs> cardamom uh, those type of spices, and then when, especially when you do it with uh, native yeast, uh, you get a lot of interaction. And so that I think that that natural style uh, tends to bring out those nuances in the grape. Uh, we have a senso from in younger vines in, in Lodi too, and so in younger vines, the fruit quality, which is you know, tends to be overwhelmingly like you know black cherries and strawberries that's what you smell the most but in the, these old vines you really get those nuances of spice and you really see the beauty of it you can and uh, uh if anyone's interested in this type of wine if you need other than bechtold sensos and there's luckily about a dozen wineries that do produce sensos like turley right and sure, when i think of bechtold Sarah i think of turley right a bunch of them but you can find you know, fairly old vine senso from uh, South Africa, and uh, no. they're not at not over a hundred years old, but you can find them made from vineyards forty or fifty or sixty years old, and those are wonderful wines too. Very, very similar in a sense. Isn't Pinotage a cross with senso and something? Yes, it's yeah, it's, yeah. You're looking at me, not yeah. I don't know. Oh, the Somme should know. Somebody should know. You're the Somme. Yeah, it's a Pinot Noir senso, and so and that's Pinotage, and of course, <coughs> you know the the offspring doesn't resemble the the grape. Yeah. The uh, the in, parent the parentage but. not on vine or on wine, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But but there there can be good pinotage. So that's another show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> talk, yeah, I've had some really good pinotage. Yeah, there, um, there can be. and you know yeah. uh, pinotage you know grows great in you know Stellenbosch and all all these oh. regions. It actually grows pretty well in Lodi, believe it or not. I was going to so, say, is there yeah. any Lodi Pinot Tux? <laughs> yes, like there is. There's a few vineyards of that. Huh. Carignan next? Yeah, shall or we taste the Carignan? I think maybe let's taste the Zin next. Oh, let's it's the not, Zin. Let's, it's a little less heavy. Uh, because the Zinfandel is not just Zinfandel. Uh, <clears throat> back in the old days when they planted these in the uh, 1880s, uh, the Spanker family also planted this just a few years after this. And so they didn't just plant uh, Zinfandel. They also had shotgun approach scattered in there. Uh, Flame Tokay, which is a table grape. Uh, Mission grapes with the first grape into California from the missionaries. There's uh, also Carignan in there, about 8% Carignan. But there's uh, some white varietals in there, too, like maybe there's a vine or two of Malvasia Bianca and some Muscat and, uh, and the Co Black Prince. And I'm the saying Black, Black Prince. And Black Prince. No Alicante, though. 
No in this Alicante one, in this one, there's no alicante. Actually, in the Carignan, we're going to taste. There's, there's some alicante. Just a smattering of alicante, mm -hmm. uh, and we, we'll talk about that in a bit. But so, what I do with uh, all those other white and table grape varietals, you're not going to get a whole lot of extract out of them. So, what I do instead is I take all those whole clusters and we put them into the bottom of the fermenter, and then that is done semi-carbonic. Wait, so, so you're yeah, you're so, separating out the white varieties and the table grapes. The table uh, so grapes. all the, the, so that's in the vineyard. Then they're picking. No, we have to separate them. Oh, you're yeah. like on, yeah. you're like they, putting they, it on the sorting table and pulling yeah, out. Pick together and putting in the same bin. But when they get to the winery, he separates. It's like, yeah. How can you make making Lodi Zinfandel more complicated and difficult? Okay. <laughs> well, it, I dig it. It I, gets it gets a little worse than that too okay. because uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll more, let you go on. Yeah, yeah even more complicated uh, because <laughs> when you do all those uh, grapes whole cluster in the bottom, every single berry becomes its own individual fermentation vessel. So it creates right. these nice esters and things like that, which is what part of what you're smelling in here. But we use a little wooden one ton basket press and I've been using it for decades. And it is uh, so gentle, even though it can go up to about uh, five atmospheres, it does not break those grapes. So my poor oh. wife, when she's shoveling out our one ton fermenters or the dairy tank and handing me the bucket and I'm pouring it into, the, into our basket press, I'm having to crush those grapes with my hands or she kicks them off to the side and when she gets down low enough, she treads them, stomps on them so that about 10% uh, of this wine is actually, the, the physical volume of wine is actually hand pressed or foot treaded. <laughs> so that's kind of I'm, fun. I'm speechless. That's amazing. Are you at your own facility? Because... Most custom grudge places would not let you do that, probably. De definitely his own facility. Well, yeah. it, it's it's not my facility, but um, uh, there are a few of us who are called do-it-yourselfers. Like-minded. Li well, like-minded, and uh, they AKA allow us. Crazy. Yes, we do all of our own work. But you got to remember that my wife and I raised six kids out on the Sonoma coast. So child slave labor was a big part of our growing up. And we kind of got used to having those little clever hands squishing grapes right. and treading. They're pretty good at that. Yeah. You know, I will say this about, because I'm, I'm actually chasing the, the 2020 royalties in Fidel for the first time too. So I, I just want, you know, I, if I was, if it's just me and Greg here, I would tell Greg that uh, this actually, this vintage kind of re reflects the way you kind of like i think you've mentioned before like push a dragon's tail a little bit it really skirts the edge uh, uh you know there's not only there's an earthiness to it that that's very low dye that's tawar but there's also uh, those those microbial sort of interactions that you get from wow. these processes that uh, creates again unusual spices and unusual uh, scents uh, uh, again, you, and you you go you're going right up against, uh, you know what people would call dirty winemaking, but somehow you manage to keep out of the mud, and uh, and so what you end up with, if someone tasted this wine blind, I, I first of all I wouldn't think they would think it's even a Zinfandel. No, that, it, that, they might even think oh it's some kind of funky Pinot. Certainly now. not Lodi Zinfandel. Uh, yeah, the common perception yeah, of because it's way too fragrant it's way too spiced and uh, and it's very delicate and soft and has great acid yeah 
And it has all the things that people don't associate with Zinfandel. Here's the ironic part. <laughs> it's actually the essence of a Lodi Zinfandel. Lodi doesn't make what people think of it as Zinfandel. Now, there's a lot of Zinfandels on the market that say Lodi on the label. But let's be honest, folks. Those are the kind of wines that are picked at 30 bricks, a ton of water added, acid adjusted, 25% uh, petite raw, lots of oak, you know, uh, uh, and lots of sticks of oak. And so that those are made, <laughs> those commercial wines are made to fulfill people's, you know, uh, assumption is this is what Zinfandel is supposed to taste like. This is, Grace is, this is real Zinfandel. Yeah, this is, this like. is what it actually tastes like. Yeah. Uh, well, I might add that Marshall Wines, one of our main goals is to have a wine have a definite sense of place from where it comes. And you can't get a wine like this from anywhere else other than the Royal Tea Zinfandel block at Jesse's Grove. And using these old vines and whole clusters, you just don't find that anywhere else. It's, it, 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 I like how you said it skirts the edge. I mean, when I first smelled it, it had that white pepper and, and definitely kind of showed some Zinfandel characters and I knew it was Zin, so I'm prefacing that, but then it completely changed by the time I got back to it. Um, it's just spectacular. I think yeah. most, most people would say this, this doesn't taste like Zinfandel. Right? As it's been in the glass, it's starting to sm to me smell more like Zinfandel, uh, yeah. but definitely, um, yeah. No, it's, it's it is it, uh, unique to the wine, yeah. the place, and the winemaking. Well, people don't think of Zinfandel as being floral Correct. or fragrant or earthy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. so it doesn't. Yeah, it it, yeah. it doesn't fit in people's worldview <laughs> of what Zinfandel is supposed to be like. But like I said, ironically, it is the essence of Lodi Zinfandel. It's just that most people have never tasted real Zippendale from Lodi. And here it is, folks. <laughs> One of the interesting things uh, about uh, Decanter Magazine is they every year they uh, list like 10 of the best Zins in America, that kind of thing. And uh, uh guy, Jeff Cox, who writes for them, came up to me one time and said, I hear you have pretty good Zin. So I went through and tasted it that with him along with other things and he bought some wine and a few months later coming out at Cantor magazine was our Zinfandel in there along with nine other Zins uh, very famous in America. And uh, it, that kind of blew me away because I think the Brits have a broader understanding of wine in general. And so they're not uh, pigeonholing a Zinfandel into that category. And they really liked right. this Zinfandel. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Who else was on that list? Do you remember any of them? And do they ta taste anywhere near yours? No. Uh, in fact, when we had Zinfest before uh, the pandemic, I think there were 20 Zins. Yeah. And mine was the only one that you could pick out in the lineup just by looking at it. It was, uh, it was also 13.5 alcohol. And the next closest Zinfandel was 15.1. So it, it stood out and they were all blind, but I could pick mine out from across but the room. He's talking about, we did a blind tasting and there were about a hundred people in the room, but in this blind tasting, half of those wines were not from Lodi. They were half like 10 Lodi wines and 10 mostly from Sonoma and Napa 
I think we had one from Paso Robles and mm-hmm. one from Contra Costa. And so, so there was a very famous winemaker sitting in the front row, uh, um, and uh, and he raised his hand and said, "Well, this wine doesn't taste like Zinfandel at all. It tastes <laughs> like Pinot Noir." And and of course, we like- knew this was Greg's wine because where Greg's, you know, Greg kind of uh, like he's the only guy wearing overalls in a room full of winemakers and and then his wine sticks out like a sore thumb too in in a blind tasting <laughs> i can usually pick my wines out we have for instance a vanderkamp annual tasting i can always pick mine out just by sense of smell as can my wife when she's walking through the winery she'll go walking by all these vats and she knows which one is a particular wine just because it really smells yeah. Like that particular like site during fermentation. Right. During fermentation, well, you know, Greg, Greg, you have to remember, does not follow follow safe winemaking protocols. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't practice safe winemaking. That's true. <laughs> and so, but consequently, you, you know, which is why I've been a big fan of Greg's forever. Uh, so, as a restaurateur, I bought all his wines because I love showing the wines. It's like. You know, again, I would show a, a La, La Follette made wine in, to a guest or or to a friend. And I, I will always say, this is not going to be what you expect, which is what I like in wine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hate predictability. Yeah. Hey, it's Greg, not interesting. Yeah, Greg, with your, you know, background, more technical background, would you say that you've always kind of been that way with not following the rules? Or is that something you had to build in, in build into comfortability. I mean, your first job was at Beaulieu, is that correct? Well, uh, my very first job in the industry was under Zillam Along in 1984 at Simi Winery. Which would have been very UC Davis kind of uh, technical, correct? Yeah, and so when well, I actually- well, Greg is UC Davis. Yeah. Well, no, I understand yeah. that, but that's, so that's where I'm going is like you right. started out with that, you know, here are the boxes, fill the boxes and get to the end and- and enjoy the wine, right? Well, uh, I think since the get-go, like when I started working under, under Zelma, I got a lot of really good technical training. And also working under Andre Chelischeff at Beaulieu, got very good technical training. But when I would go to Davis and the professors would say, oh, this is what happens when you do this, so don't go there, I would say, Oh, cool. I'm going to try that out. Right. Don't press the red button. <laughs> I pressed okay. I pressed all the buttons. <laughs> yep. We did have some nuclear launches, but uh, mostly I I learned a lot in the early days. And you have to remember too that I'm I was what you call a, a international consulting winemaker. Consulting because you just hire out your sensory organs to the highest bidder. And uh, basically to to be a uh, Consulting a winemaker means that you're just getting paid to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. So uh, I would go to places like uh, Chile and and Australia and or there's also I have non-disclosure agreements with some pretty big wineries here in California that let's mention them all that, that screwed up and uh, let's get sued. Yeah. And so uh, it was my job to fix problems. And in doing that, you kind of learn how to avoid problems as well. Or how right. to utilize problems to make better wine. It's a, a problem is another word for opportunity, and yeah, it is I, indeed trickling the tickling the dragon's tail. That's that's what you say, tickling, not yeah. Or you're kind of pushing it a little bit, like, oh yeah. So that I, hurt. Uh, so I'm probably <laughs> the most 
high-tech, low-tech winemaker you'll probably never meet. So, and so it's, it's beautiful um, when it's applied to uh, grapes like these, you know, which, you know, for old vines, uh, um, you know, not uh, that are very transparent. And, uh, um, and so, and, and so we got Gray to come back uh, out to Lodi on a consistent basis in two, two, 2012. If you recall, and that's when we were starting our Lodi Native project, you know, where we were telling uh, uh, um, winemakers that you had to pick a, a heritage vineyard, uh, <clears throat> but you have to make wine from it, and we'll put it all uh, under one label, but it would be uh, labeled by the name of the vineyard rather right. than your brand, and you can't do anything, you know. So and so, Greg came out and and and, and gave uh, some pep talks to the winemakers because. Some of some of them had experience with that, and others had zero experience. So they had to be, you know, sort of reassured that it's okay, it, it's okay to go this route, you know. And and some winemakers were saying, "You mean you don't want us to make good Zinfandel? You want us to make a shitty?" And and <laughs> but no. And I was, we would say, "No, we don't want you to make." Great Zinfandel or Shetty Zinfandel. We want you to make a Zinfandel that tastes like where it came from. Right. And and so imagine that. And so now everyone is doing it that way. Yeah. And so it's it's it sort of changed, you know, that you know, sort of uh, approach to Zinfandel. Yeah. So even some of the commercial wineries are started to uh, have started to do that as well. Um, they might still be making a commercial style Zinfandel you know, by formula, uh, uh, and that's maybe that's what they're selling, you know, from Asia all the way up to Northern Europe. But they're also making some interesting, uh, 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 very transparent, terroir-focused uh, uh, vineyard uh, Zinfandels, and so, so that's great. And um, well, and, and can I ask you, Randy, when the the shift in the Lodi winemaking world went from just making Lodi Zinfandel to uh, calling out these vineyard designates. And, you know, when did Turley start doing Bechtold, uh, you know, well, and now, cause now, you know, and we, we have winemakers well, who come well, on the Tur show and name these. Well, Turley is, is a, is a big influence. They right. actually started <laughs> making wine from uh, the Royal Tea vineyard that we were, we were just tasting. Right, they started, I believe in uh, 1998, okay. and I could be wrong. Could be 1999. So they actually made a few vintages from that and, vineyard and labeled it as that vineyard. Totally, yes. Okay. But they know they call it Spankerach. Uh, okay. Yeah, and uh, once in a while, still uh, um, Tegan Pasolaco <clears throat> from Turley will pull out, uh, you know, a uh, 21 or 22 year old uh, uh, bottling from that vineyard, and they're still fresh. And lively and amazing. And, uh, you know, and Turley loved the vineyard. Um, they just decided to move on when, you know, like happens a lot in their history. Maybe they didn't see exactly eye to eye with the grape grower. And so they got a nice long, uh, uh, long term contract with a vineyard on the east side of Lodi called. Uh, Dogtown, and so they still make Dogtowns, and they're amazing wines, and those are also 20, 25-year Zinfandels, by the way, 
amazing acidity, kind of like the Perlagos Brothers uh, Stampede Vineyards. You know, it's just on the other side of the river, but it produces Zinfandels with a lot of acid, which is unusual for Lodi, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But then now, totally, uh, I believe they make wine from no less than six different vineyards in Lodi, including the uh, the Becto Sensol. And they actually make the most... Uh, a sense of, of all the wineries that pull from it. Uh, they they get a huge chunk of it. And uh, they do a sort of, you know, Cru Beaujolais style, which is what Pasolac kind of likes. Um, so he calls it Poron because he believes it, it's a it's a nice quaffing wine. Yeah, but there's complexity to it. Yeah. Is, is it fair to say that the old vines hold acid better and, and they can make those more structured wines as opposed to new plantings of Zinfandel in, in the Lodi area that tend to be cropped heavier. And again, I know crop level is not the level, not well, the issue, I, but I, I think the issue of young and old has more to do with, you know, develop physical development of, of a vine. So even Turley, well, might have a vineyard, and they have many vineyards now that they control up up and down the state. They might have uh, a vineyards where, you know, vines are 100 years old, 50 years old, 25 years old, and maybe they're all sort of head trained in, in that fashion with a single stake. Uh, but they'll always tell you the best wines come from uh, uh, the oldest vines. And in fact, they don't just, it's not just a, a belief. It's actually something that, they know because they pick it separately and then they can compare, they can compare the TAs and, the, and, the, and, uh, um, and, and, and compare it on a sensory level. And they can clearly see the older vines tend to make better balanced wines with more acidity. Right. Uh, um, and, and that's be, and, and that's more of a physiological development. Like I said, in the older vine, you have, you know, a more developed trunk, uh, and spurs, and uh, deeper rooting systems and so invariably those wines those vines produce a better wine with better numbers right. yeah the vines, so the, the vines are more balanced right. so they're not stressed as much so they, yeah so it's they don't have to shed acid when it gets no it's stuff. a and it's another matter with trellis zinfandel i think it's pretty much proven that you know zinfandel is is better off head trained or on a, a stake or freestanding or bush or whatever you want to call it. Uh, um, and uh, because when, because when you, uh, you know, <laughs> when you train it on the trellis, you know, you, it has less opportunity to develop that structural, uh, that basic structure um, that Thanks. gives older, older vines a chance, which is why, you know, trellis vines after 20 or 30 years, they, tend to uh, give way to, you know, these disease pressures and uh, uh, dead arm and all kinds of things. And so your typical trellis vineyard all around the world is replaced after 20 or 30 years. Your average vine in Napa Valley, for instance, is, is less than 20 years old. And uh, because, you know, they're a, a trellis region. And so, uh, so it's a system too. Uh, the the vines were, I mean, it's interesting because now there's a lot of talk about, you know, redoing pruning methods of trellis vines, but it's all based on the idea of how can we duplicate the natural style of growth that you get in 
a head train line, you know, uh, um, you know, to create, a, you know, a, just a stronger structure. Um, so, and that the end product is in the wine, it's in the grapes, uh, the TA, uh, pH, and uh, balance of flavor and sh and sugar. So, cool. Well, Sam, I've got a lot oh. of questions about um, head trained and trellised. Why is it that way? And do you guys, wh how do you do it in enterprise? I, I mean, first of all, I think um, the decline of commercial trellised vines, part of it is the farming system, but also those vines are also typically getting um, heavy doses of herbicides and other chemicals that are going to hurt. You know, you're spraying Roundup on a plant and Roundup is designed to kill plants and eventually it kills the plants. Um, so I think that's a piece of it. You know, we have um, trellised Cabernet at at Cayman Vineyard that's 40 years old and is still going strong. So, um, you know, the farming aspect of that is, is a huge piece of it for sure. Um, but, you know, in the same, same way that like uh, olive trees, when they're planted you know dry farmed large spacings allowed to be the way that they want to be will live you know 500 years but right now the the trend in olive oil production is high density low plant you know small plantings and those trees start to decline after 15 or 20 years yeah, they're, they're trimmed like bushes yeah and and so yeah again disease pressure right and you know and, and after a while it's, it's not just worth it. maximum extraction and then you and then you move on um the, there's really interesting work going on and we're working with um uh some pruning consultants simonite and search never say it right right um and there that's definitely yes that's what i'm talking that's exactly about. What, uh, and yeah. taking that concept of that sort of bonsai head trained vine and how to apply that sort of same physiology to the the trellis plants and um you know, we've seen some really interesting uh, results using some of their methodology in the last few years. Yeah. Definitely making those those Cabernet vines particularly well, it, it's stronger to create more of more wood right. and more sap flow um, without doing basically. you know cordones and, right. and things like that, where you yeah. get you know uh, susceptible to dead but arm and things like that. Ironically, though, pruning trellis vines to duplicate as much as possible what comes more natural on 100 on a head train vine you know a freestanding vine because i mean a vine is a vine it's it's actually uh, like i said it's a creepy crawly thing but when it's allowed to grow like a head train vine it's uh um, that i think they use the right. term uh it's more natural right uh, well uh, and you know as we move into these like drought boom and bust sort of years having some you know, serious trunk and, and spurs for places for the vines to store carbo carbohydrates and, you know, build strength for to get through the dry years, you know, in a wet year like this, soak up as much as they can. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to sort of reevaluate uh, these pruning practices and and training practices that we've done for the last 30, 40 years. Absolutely. When it comes, it's more and more important because of everyone's recent experience with continuous drought and and heat high heat yeah yeah and i'm just like my 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 mouth is watering it's on the finish it's yeah. just like 
I feel like I have more water in my mouth than if I took a sip of well, water. Well, this it's wine just like, has beautiful acidity. Amazing. Uh, just a moderate amount of tannin. This is this vineyard is planted in 1900 on its own rootstock, you know, and it's Carignan, so the vines are a little bit larger than uh, a Zinfandel would get. Uh, so they have a tendency to tip over, <laughs> and um, but uh, it, it, it's uh, it's just a beautiful vineyard, and they the the family, the Spankers, they just planted a whole load of them. A lot of people don't realize, but by the time the California wine industry got into the 50s and 60s and 70s, Carignan was the most widely planted red wine variety in California. More For more. Real? Carignan. More than Cabernet, more, far more than Pinot. Pinot was almost unheard of, uh, and so was Merlot. Uh, but uh, Carignan used to be uh, the workhorse grape for California and to make, especially, you know, jug red wines, yeah. you know, uh, um, Gallo, Hardy, Burgundy, etc. And they used a lot of Zinfandel in that too. <coughs> but... Uh, um, it it works all over California because it is again like Senso. It's a Mediterranean grape. It's a grape of southern France, it, and it's grown all over Spain and in Africa. It loves warm climate. California is basically you know a beach state. It's it love it's a hot climate state, and so Carignan uh, is is an easy thing. Is it fell out of popularity? What once Merlot and Cabernet and then Pinot Noir became popular. Uh, um, so now there's reason. there's not a lot of Carignan even in Lodi, uh, uh, but the Carignan that we do have tends to be on the old side, <laughs> and so yeah, and so that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, and so this is a, you can it's a beautiful wine. It, Carignan should be have a lot of cherry, black cherry, uh, and a lot of red fruit, and it's known for its acidity, which is why it was so popular in Zinfandel blocks. It could add acidity to it yeah. uh, um, because it, it's, it's actually a grape that takes and it needs another two or three weeks you know, to ripen. But when you, if you pick it at the same time as Zinfandel, it definitely can add that acid Punch. balance yeah. to it. And uh, so great. Can we talk about the winemaking on this little Greg? Yeah. Or yeah. maybe making Carignan in general. <clears throat> well. What you know about it. What, what you've learned. Carignan is a, a little like Zinfandel in that it's a fairly plastic grape it can really push me pull you you can stretch and shape it into different ways uh Syrah can be a bit like that too which is why Shiraz and Carignan are, are big deals in Australia where I've also lived and made wine and but this one is done a little bit differently uh as you might imagine so this yeah, what uh, grapes are you having your children hand squeeze on this one? <laughs> well I got I got pictures I can show you of my wife in the fermenter uh uh, are actually holding that little wooden one-ton basket press. The whole thing that she's holding weighs about twelve hundred pounds, so it's it's all about technique. Uh, but it's <laughs> this, with your legs on that, right? Yeah, and and balance it, yeah. But uh, though there's a white grape in there called Monbidon, and <clears throat> Monbidon is a now almost extinct extinct white grape varietal, uh, and it has a very gelatinous pericarp, meaning that the the fruit is like kind of snotty. So it's not very easy to press as a white grape. Mm -hmm. And I know about this because when I was working under Andre Chelischeff at Beaulieu, we had a, a, a beautiful old vineyard also planted around 1900 up on Spring Mountain. And in order to get that 
<clears throat> at that time, 80-something-year-old grapes, which went into the George Latour Private Reserve, we also had to get 10 tons of this Monbidon. <laughs> and, uh, oh, oh, which in California then uh, was known as Burger. Burger. Oh. Yeah. So uh, my job is- No one the, calls it mom, but no. Yeah. <laughs> Only the French, and they can't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so uh, it was my job as the junior winemaker to make sure that we could press that white grape, and it just blinded up the juice channels like crazy. I hated that stuff. And so when I was offered uh, this fruit as well, and by the way, all of these vines came to me. I didn't seek them out. So uh, when we started Marshall, we actually started it uh, only as ancient vines and named it after our two wives, my wife Mara and my business partner Kevin's wife Michelle, Mara Michelle Marshall. And uh, <clears throat> so we got these, this grape also, and we're out there picking away my wife and I and the other winemakers are waiting over at the winery for the grapes to come in. And so when the piscadores got to these white grapes, they would go, no, no, the senor don't, he doesn't want any white grapes. And my wife, who's a native Spanish speaker and myself were going, no, no, we want the white grapes, put them in. <laughs> so, uh, this has about 10% Monbidon in it, which is, I think the vineyards planted to about 10 or 12%. Is that right, Randy, of Monbidon? Well, no, it can't be more than that, Greg. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's, At, it's not a lot. Yeah, um, but this is about 10 to 12%. And about 1% uh, Alicante bush. Yeah, there's a little bit of Alicante in there. There's a vine or two of flame toquet in there. Yeah. So, uh, but, but a, a vine or two of flimmed toquet could be like 3% of your total volume, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. But this is a pretty big block. So, yeah. um, so we were going, yeah, no, put it in, put it in. So when we got to the winery, once again, we laboriously separated out the white grapes. They went into the bottom of the fermenter. And then when we, uh, pressed it off, we had to hand squeeze these rather gelatinously pericarped, uh, grapes. But these other winemakers coming through in the winery, as they're coming through, my wife or I would take one of these berries off of the whole cluster that had this carbonic fermentation, popped it in the winemaker's mouth. It's fucking delicious. Yeah, it's like uh, adult Pop Rocks. It's, <laughs> uh, and these winemakers would be going like, wow, now that's winemaking. You know, we're in there, we're inside the fermenter, uh, shoveling it out, we're doing the hand, the basket press thing. And I could see in these guys' eyes that they would rather be doing what I was doing, but I only make between 50 and a hundred cases yeah. of each one of these wines that we're tasting yeah, okay. and they're, they're a little on the pricey side. Uh, so you've got to make wine for both fun and profit. And, uh, I'm no longer in the profitable category, but uh, <laughs> right. we sure do have a lot of we fun making fun. it. And, yeah. and this is about 10% whole cluster with the Monbidon in it. Now, keep in mind that they, they, they planted burger for the same reasons, like in old days, they planted, uh, you know, uh, Faux Blanche, and they used to use a lot of Thompson Seedless, and uh, what's another grape? Uh, Green Hungarian. I mean, these, these grapes, they fell out of popularity because they don't make wines with a lot of flavor. But that used to be perfect for Jug Chablis. Right. You know, you want it to be kind of neutral. Well, so uh, so the question goes so. is when they make these decisions to plant burger with Carignan, I mean, that was a that someone thought about that. And, and what was it? Was it? Well, let's use it as an extender. Was there something that the 
that the carignan wasn't giving them that they that the burger was and i'm saying burger because i can't pronounce the other one <laughs> but, but i mean these were conscious thoughts and, no, that's and this the was in 19 uh, 1900 i mean yeah. no i i, I would you, submit you think that, about that you know the old timers you know from the 1930s 40s 50s they knew what they were doing and then and and if they they knew they need a certain percentage of white grapes with less flavor and then there's always more perfumey grapes you know like muscat riesling chenin blanc that you can also put into a blend to make a white wine and so you so you so you want you know neutral grapes you know along with more fragrant grapes put it together and um and that's the whole idea of a blending and the same thing for reds you want carignan for acidity you know and you get a good price for it. you want zippendel also for that fruitiness and maybe a little petite for more color and all that and nowadays they use Toraldigo for that and mm. uh and you want maybe some alicante uh, uh which gives you a lot of acid and, and, uh, and a lot of tannin and color but with the momadon yeah. if it's like that gelatinous is there are you getting less liquid per ton than you would from a normal grape or does it eventually break down into turn, a liquid? Into <clears throat> yeah, right. uh, eventually it turns into juice, but I do think that you have more uh, dry matter in there actually. And my own thought about these guys planting 133 years ago, they were thinking, you know, 133 years from now, we're going to have some sucker who's going to have his wife yeah. in there <laughs> squeezing these berries <laughs> with her bare uh, feet, you know? Do you think they ever thought that their vines would still be alive? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's one very famous vineyard in, I think it's in southern Russia or maybe Georgia, where the guy was interviewed in, I don't know, he was over 100 years old. And he said that he planted that vineyard so that his grandchildren would have something to work with. Of course, mm -hmm. he lived over like 108 mm -hmm. or something well, like that. But. Well, tell him about that. So he never uh, let that, his kids or his grandkids work well, in that shit. Yeah. Well, tell him about that 120-year-old well, white wine vineyard that you utilize in the Russian River. Okay. Oh yeah. So uh, there's. Wait, uh, uh, I, I, I almost sent you a message last night to see if he could bring a bottle okay. of this. All right. So let's tell yeah, the story. I, it's I, amazing. I, yeah. So I, I did, but I dropped it off with a grower. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so that is a French Columbard, and mm. French Columbard's pretty easy to tell. It originally was called West's White Prolific because it is a very pr prolific producer. And up until the 1960s, it was the most widely planted white grape varietal in California. And then West, by the way, is George West, who founded El Pinal Winery in Stockton. Yeah. So it all comes so, together. So yeah, so he was the one that sort of discovered, I mean, they didn't discover, they got all their material from the uh, Boston nurseries, just like everyone else. Yeah, and but then, he's and then the made up their names just like everyone else. It, but it was called West uh, White Prolific because he's the one that popularized it. But, yeah, and so uh, <clears throat> originally uh, there were some other winemakers that thought that the Montbidon in the Carignan was actually French Columbard, but I knew no way. It, it, we actually had to get Lucy Morton to solve that uh, controversy for us, and it was indeed Montbidon. But the, I... We do have some uh, French Colobard still left in Sonoma County, and it is an extremely late ripener. It, it's real easy to pick uh, French Colobard in Sonoma County. 
you just wait until after it goes through one rain and before it's going to rot all to hell. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> and that's when it's at uh, 18 or 19 bricks. White, white grapes in th on Thanksgiving? Pretty much so, yeah. We're planting, we're picking those into October, late October. Easier well, to uh, get a crew. Well, Columbard was very widely, uh, it still is actually widely planted because it goes, does great in uh, the Central Valley. Yeah. It loves hot climate. And you know, it, it, it yeah. does that because it has such high acidity. And in the Central Valley, when it gets hot, grapes can drop acid faster than a hippie from the 60s. Oh boy. <laughs> Resemble that remark a little bit. But, I know, but, there was a bunch of people at uh, a fish show at the Greek Theater last night. So <laughs> not just okay. the 60s. <laughs> so uh, so it, it holds acid really well. And in fact, uh, we find that making uh, French Columbard in Sonoma County, particularly from the Betty Ann Vineyard, um, which I, I have a little bit of brandy distilled from that vineyard that's going to go into a sparkling wine that we're going to be putting together what? pretty soon. Yeah. So, yeah, this is brandy made from 131-year-old sure grapes. invited back to the show, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so Betty Ann is actually kind of a, a discovered uh, block. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, growing among weeds that, that was planted early, what, early 1900s? 1902. 1902. Is, it's a member of the uh, Heritage Vineyard Society. Yeah. You have to have it documented, and it was documented in 1902. Uh, so it's at least that old. And uh, 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 Clark Lystra, who is the former president of the uh, Russian River Valley Wine Growers Association, called me up and he said, can you tell me what I got here? There's a bunch of old abandoned vines sitting about a little higher up than your kneecaps and just these little old ladies. And uh, so I said, well, that's French Columbard. And we spent uh, a couple of years, my wife and his wife and he and I resuscitating those vines. And I think our first vintage that we were really trying to do anything. We got about 43 pounds year before last. We got a third of a ton. So it's going back to health, but I've uh, never heard a winemaker talk in terms of pounds. That was the first time yeah. I'd have heard that. So, uh, Where is the, vineyard? the vineyard is off a of hall road, uh, hall and Irwin. And it's also uh home of some really nice Pinot Noir that's young and planted and, I think uh, gets picked months before the French Columbine. Oh yes. Right. right. It, right. Exactly. Uh, but uh, there's a restaurant in Sonoma County called Single Thread that's got all three of its Michelin stars in uh, uh, two years and is now one of the top 50 restaurants in the world. And they called me up and they said, uh, can you make our house white for us? And there's only two rules. It can't be Chardonnay. It has to be from Sonoma County. And I'd been working on this project with Clark Lystra. And I said, I've got just the right grapes for you. And so that became the house white for single thread. The pandemic came, they couldn't sell it all. So they quote, sold some back to me for like a ridiculously low price. And that wine was the very beginning of Marshall wine. My business partner and I said, these are old vines. Let's name these after our wives because neither one of us would be here without them. And uh, that was the beginning of Marshall with these ancient vine. Uh, now, so uh, even though Columbard was a jug wine, though, there, there were a lot of wineries that produced varietal Columbard in back in the 60s and 70s. Like, you know, um, I'm talking about, uh, well, Almaden and Gallo. They, Gallo actually produced a very respectable French Columbard. Uh, uh, but it used to be, you know, 
among the varietal listings, you know, along with Chenin Blanc, Green Hungarian, and uh, you know, all all the, all the weird things that you don't see anymore. Sure. And then and people produce French Columbard, and um, and you can go to a grocery store and be sitting there. You can buy buy a bottle or a jug, and um, it's in. And even Shalom at one point was making an old vine uh, columbard and and um, kind of like grapes, very minerally and fragrant and crisp at the same time. Great acid. And so people with European taste would, would like it. People with California taste, because people with California taste, like a lot of body and fruit, fruitiness, uh, wouldn't like columbard, which is why it's not considered nice anymore i i need a bottle of this wine <laughs> greg how do you go about resuscitating those vines <clears throat> well uh first you got to clear the weeds out yes that, that's the first thing you do is you dig them out from the weeds you keep the weeds out you uh th this is all being done organically so we have use organic compost on it and sometimes you know things like that uh there's some biodynamic preps that you can use to keep the weeds down too but you have to be very selective with the shoots these old vines, they want to survive. So what they're doing is they're putting out a ton of different shoots. And what you have to do is take off most of those shoots so that you can direct your energy just into a very few shoots that are healthy enough to produce mm -hmm. grapes. And it takes a while to get those old gals kind of disciplined. They just want to get wild and do a lot of reproducing and you got to help. Well, they are vines. So yes, vines right. are supposed to put out Free love. vines. So, yeah. so were, was this vineyard feral for quite a while? Was that what it was? Yep. Or was it just not managed correctly? Well, it was a combination of sort of all of the above. It was kind of semi-abandoned. They were more uh, ornaments yeah. than anything else. But uh, I think Clark and his wife, Bonnie, have done a great job of uh, husbanding those vines back to where it can be a significant portion of what we do. And uh, another portion of that comes from the Cameron Ranch. And <clears throat> those vines are uh, a lot younger. They're, they're a spry uh, 60 years old or something like that. So. Butch Cameron. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Butch. Yeah. He had, and I've, I used to buy uh, stuff from Butch back in the day at Flowers. And I also used to buy Trousseau Gris from Peter Finucchi. And now all those things are really, yeah. So how long did it take before they became productive again? Uh, a couple of years before they really started putting out. And I was just by there this morning and saw that we did a few little different things, so a little bit longer canes. We're going to rub out some buds. We still have uh, frost possibilities, so we're not going to disbud anything until we see what kind of damage has been happening with them? Have you guys ever met Tom Katuri? It's been a long time. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And then Randy. No. Randy lives out in uh, Lodi with your cousins. Oh, yeah. He knows the Leventinis. I haven't asked yet if he knows the Leventinis. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not going to say anything else. We don't have any Leventini wine here, unfortunately. They're actually famous for their okay. Barbera. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we don't so, so first. Yeah. So we, uh, it's definitely the other side of the wine growing world. The Leventini family, uh, our cousins out there, you know, they're making more on the bulk production. Right. Yeah. The last time we saw them, we were comparing by the ton 
price for Zinfandel for what they get and what we get, and it's uh, magnitudes <laughs> difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much Zinfandel out there that a lot of it is going for nothing. Right. Or not going at all. We've been having a total history lesson today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Signal Ridge. No, Lookout Ridge. Lookout Ridge, you're right. Yeah. Gordon Holmes. Right, yeah. Yeah, the wheelchairs, right? Yeah, yeah. The wheelchair project, yeah. Big storm, yeah. And then the earthquake. Shall we go to the last one? Yeah, yeah. This is the big blend, right? Yeah, so this last wine is the blend of all of these grapes we just tasted. And... Wait, why? Just just sorry, as a... Well, remember how I said that uh, you want to make wine for both fun and profit? Yeah. Well, this is kind of more of the profit aspect. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> but also, because it does make really good wine. Yeah. Now, uh, here's, here's a funny part. So you guys have had Pasolacqua at your table, too. He, yeah. too, makes an almost exact same blend except he's very disciplined about it it has to be one third one third one third every year because he wants to see vintage variation but yeah. also old vine carignan old vine zinfandel and old vine Sanson. except the zinfandel part comes from his own vineyard on the east side uh, 1915 vineyard uh, um, but he does the same thing Sanson, carignan yeah. uh, zinfandel blend yeah. So yours is every, yours changes every, every year. year. It's different depending on how much we have. But most blends like this uh, is kind of like the the leftovers or you know what you've got after you've done your vineyard designate. Yeah. We do this a bit bass backwards. We uh, actually look at doing our blend first because we know that all the the barrels that we have are going to be good. So we look and see what kind of blends are going to. We just want this to be the winner of the first empty glass contest. And, it, and whereas the other three, we didn't have any new oak. This has, uh, let's see, uh, about 20% new oak on it. So, and it's also made in higher quantities. So we made about three, an amazingly high 300 cases of this wine versus 50. So right. we can sell this, for instance, by the glass at restaurants. Right. So I, I think this wine really puts it all together. You 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 really do get the fragrance and the spices from Zinfandel. You get the the delicate, you know, fruit from the Sansol, and then you get the structure and acidity of the Carignan, and and then it really. They do complement each other aromatically as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is the kind of thing that a lot of those, you know, old field blind, you know, mixed black kind of vineyards are basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Zinfandel, Carignan, and Cinso. Yeah. And there's a reason that those survived and they work really well together, right? Uh, exactly. And so this is pretty much uh, along just what you said, Sam. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's what somebody may have made like a hundred and. 30 years ago. Yeah, you can see why Zinfandel and Carignan are, are, are good oh. traditional blenders. You know, yeah. Sansol, not so much because, you know, um, it was never as popular, but I think it was it was grown because it grows well. You know, it's Mediterranean yeah. grape. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> aromatically and texturally, um, 
you know, Karnyan's in are they're they work well. You know? And what I like about this is that the way that little bit of oak that you've used here kind of brings it all, you know, kind of is like the glue that brings it all together. It's not it doesn't come across as a new oak wine, yeah. uh, but it you know it adds it. a little it adds a little yeah. richness and and sort of you know it's like it's the glue. Mm. Totally. Now there is a lodi thread in this wine too. There's just that faint smidgen of of a loamy earthiness to it. You know, just a trace of compost or whatever. That's very lodi. You know, and, and that you only find on that side of Lodi. You don't even find it on the other side of Lodi. It's only on the west side of Lodi. Oh, yeah, you're on the west side of Lodi. This, for these wines, grapes are all west side. Yeah, yeah. so uh, you, you you don't get earthiness or loaminess on the east side. If that's all perfume. Because right, that's the more sandy, gravelly soils there. No gravel in, no in gravel, these but that, areas. Like the, but the, the, there, it is a little, a little more beach sandy. It's a variation of the same soil, a little deeper and a little sandier. On the east side. Yeah, and so consequently, uh, you know, uh, uh, vine size is smaller, clusters weight is lower, berry size is smaller, and then one of the results is uh, less earthiness. Randy, I've been waiting to uh, get back to the soil. How did do you know the geological history of this area? How it got to be so deep and well, so perfect? Well, it's, it's, it's a watershed area, so it's the McCullumy River is is the biggest river, and it's dammed now in three places. And there's and there's you know two reservoirs, you know uh, Comanche and <coughs> and uh, Pardee uh, in between Lodi and the foothills, and so it's controlled these days, but. But that is, used to be a wild raging river, and so in the 1800s, you know, the water table was all the way up to about five feet below the surface. Now it's more like 60, and so, so the river is controlled. But in so the soil, it's not like it's ancient soil. It's soil that probably averages around 15,000 years in age. So it's basically just uh, uh, decomposed granite. Granite is the base rock of the Sierra Nevada. And just mixed in there with uh, loam to create that uh, deep alluvium. And so that's what makes it unique. Because, as you know, this is also the area that, you know, dips right into the delta, which then the delta area is primarily below sea level. And then whereas these areas I'm talking about are anywhere from 5 to about 90 feet above sea level. So it's still flat. But... It's, it's not quite the delta because once you get into the delta, you get a peat type soil because uh, the, those historically are usually underwater. Not now. They got a lot of Chinese guys to dig those levees, make those levees. And uh, um, and so, but, but it's still, still a much higher still, silt number. Yes, it's, it's a peat soil. Yeah. So it's, a, it's much richer. You know, it's, it is sandy. Right. right. It's great for asparagus and uh, asparagus. Belgian endive, and and you can grow grapes there. There's actually a lot of Pinot Noir out there, <laughs> and so a lot of commercial Pinot. So so that's what makes that area sort of unique is, is that soil. So it's a watershed soil. But once you get outside, most of Lodi is actually more odors type soils. You know, rocky volcanic types hillside type soils and that's about 60 percent of the Appalachian and those are much older those are half million years old type soils 
So these are young alluvial soils that were these were the zipidos. So the old timers always knew that you could plant great flame toke and zinfandel in these sandy soils. Zinfandel loved that. But once you got you know went a few feet and got into say uh, more of a terrace uh, uh, sandy clay type soil, uh, you're going to hit a hard pan. You know within three or four feet. Uh, you're you're not going to get to deep rooting, and and it's not as rich. You know, um, the sandy loam soil is much richer uh, than those sandy clay types rocky soils. Uh, um, so these are all own rooted vines. You know, yeah, because uh, you know, phylloxera doesn't doesn't proliferate in the uh, in the sandy loam. It if in it exists, but it's more on the surface. And in these type of soils, that uh, you can get pretty deep rooting. So, so is this still fermented or blended? It's blended. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not. You've a... worked all over the world, and and when it came to a certain point in your career, and I've heard you say this, where you just didn't want to work with assholes anymore. You just kind of <laughs> wanted to do your own thing. Well, it, with the exception you of have, if you don't want to work with assholes, right. you have to do your own <laughs> right, thing exactly. in this business. Yeah. So you need more than you, one in a room. Exactly. Right. <laughs> he only wants to work with one anymore. Uh, he's got to look him in the mirror every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but had you worked with grapes from Lodi? And, and why was it that you decided that this kind of was going to be what you started to 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 kind of do as your passion project that you're, this is what you're going to spend your free time doing. Well, uh, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not just making wine so much anymore. I'm doing this because I really love the people and the land and the people in Lodi are some of the most authentic people I've ever met. These guys are real farmers. There's no pretension. It's pretty down to earth. Everyone's willing to help everyone else out. It feels a lot like, what the Napa Valley was like, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And I love the people there. I love the atmosphere. And it just so happens that they have some great grapes, including some of the world's oldest vines of any varietal you could yeah. imagine. And that keeps me coming back because it's all about wh what I'm doing. I love, I'm passionate about, and I feel really free to be myself in Lodi, yeah. you know, and, uh, I, I don't get treated like with kid gloves or anything there. I'm just another farmer like everyone else. And to tell you the truth, that's the way I really like it. I love yeah. the people of Lodi. Yeah. Going, from, going from small berries to big berries, was it a big, a hard transition? I mean, yeah, Pinot Noir was, was your bread and butter. Yeah, well, uh, that's that's a good question, Phil. Uh, Let's repeat the question just because the the airplane and the microphone and the speaker uh, going from the little berries of the Pinot Noir to the big berries of the Cinso and the Carignan and the Car and the and the Zinfandel. Yeah. Sorry, uh, so it turns out that we're doing a series of trials right now. There are certain farming techniques that you can do. And my first degree was in plant biology, so I really approach things from a vine physiology standpoint. There are certain things you can do, one which is called carbohydrate repartitioning strategy. I think, Phil, you and I have talked about that, where you can actually get smaller berries. And the growers that I'm working with, including Acquiesce Winery, have actually shown, there's Rodney, one of the owners there, he's meticulously gone through 
in these areas where they pulled leaves at a certain time, like right around flowering to create more shatter and open up your cluster architecture. But then you also need to continue that momentary carbohydrate deficiency into berry cell division and berry cell expansion. Now, before people's eyes start glazing over, the three most important moments of winemaking occur before a berry has ever made it into the winery. The best place to make wine is in the vineyard. And those three most important moments are flowering, berry cell division, and berry cell expansion. And if you can have more open cluster architecture, and by the way, you're going to get better bud fruitfulness for the following year because you get more solar penetration and you get more uh, grapes and less tendrils uh, because you differentiate your bud primordia. But uh, if you can continue that carbohydrate deficiency into berry cell division, you have fewer cells per berry means smaller berries. If you then continue it into berry cell expansion, instead of big cells, you get little cells, you get smaller berries. And one of the things that acquiesce and some of the other folks out there, I think uh, uh, Twin Oaks or some other folks have been doing that, have shown that if you apply this, you can get smaller berries, more open cluster architecture. And then, by God, you can put a lot of winemakers out of business just by giving them good fruit and making them kind of like vestigial uh, winemakers, you know? That, that's kind of like what I'd like to see is having great grapes come into the winery so that there's no excuse for the winemaker anymore. You can't blame it on the, the vineyard, which happens a lot. No, it's, if it's a bad year, it's the vineyard. It's a good year as the winemaker. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we have a saying uh, that the biggest vertebrate pests in a vineyard are <laughs> winemakers, but that assumes that winemakers actually have backbones. And right, so, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to my winemaker friends out there. <laughs> you, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the sense so really reminds me of Napa Valley Gamay. Valley Gay, yeah. You know, you know, and, 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 and Napa Valley Gamay is, is, is uh, you know, is a larger buried varietal, <laughs> has that, the aromatics, it, it, it's, 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 it's right there. You know, and, and if you try to grow Napa Valley Gamay right now in Napa Valley, they, they'd probably throw you out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, there's, um, the senso though has more spice notes uh than about to go would ever have yeah. uh and I, and uh the lower family still produces beautiful Bavagay down there in uh uh Salinas valley mm-hmm. or uh arroyo seco yeah. uh, ava it's it, it's still fantastic yeah. you know and and i'm glad someone's still well, doing michael that. cruz is still doing some well, Gay well, thing, yeah, right? uh, yeah billy d also uh, billy davies of uh, the shramsburg yeah. family he's uh making some Gay from uh buddha's dharma up in mendocino yeah. county and it's yeah. really yeah. good still nice great you know well, russell Cundiff up on on uh uh mm-hmm. Top of, of uh, Snow mm-hmm. Mountain and Napa Gamay. Yeah. All right. And Bruni, the Brunings had Napa Gamay. Yeah, so it was always a good wine. Yeah, you it, was know, a, it was um, a great wine. And, and, and you, you wouldn't have a problem with mildew. It, it just sort of muscles its way through everything. Yeah. So you're, you're right, though. Uh, uh, what gives Sanso its character is, is, is the fact that it sure. is almost like a table grape. It's, it's a large cluster and large berries. And fairly thin skins and so incredible spice yeah a lot of spice so and which is why it's it's so important when if you look 
at any of the numbers of any major uh, Chateauneuf du Pop producer, they all have Sans Salt in it. It is considered important. It's as important as Petit Bordeaux or Malbec is in Bordeaux. It's you. It's almost like you must have Sans Salt in that blend. Um, so another one of those reasons I, I, I feel, and, and especially with Carignan and the and the mixed black vineyards, when you have a Zinfandel, I don't care where it is, you're going to have dehydration happening. And it's going to spike. And instead of adding water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and so yeah, a little carignan. Create that balance. Yeah, you know, um, Jesus units are real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and carignan in Lodi is usually uh, among the first to be planted. I mean, to be yeah, brought in, harvested. So it's it's we we usually have it by mid August or uh, so. Um, sometimes it might get into early September, but it's usually a, a mid-August so, uh, a pick, which is maybe a couple of weeks before most of it is in. Okay. Well, I was actually going to ask you about that, Greg. The 2020s have none of the problems that many people associate with the 2020 vintage. I, I you know, those wines, none of them had any smoke, smoke at all. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to. It's like a four-letter word. I didn't want to yeah. say it. Um, There's also so, new oak in those. Well, so what were your what were your sort of throwback to 2020 pick dates uh, for those three wines? Uh, <clears throat> well, let's see. The Carignan was picked last. That was picked in uh, uh, late September. Uh, that particular vineyard, for whatever reason, takes longer to ripen. The Zinfandel that year was picked uh, September second or third and the Cinso was picked uh, about 10 days uh, after that approximately to, mm. to two weeks so yeah. all sort of in that mid-september range early to mid-september yeah well those three early to first week to third week of september yeah but um this we didn't have the fires next to lodi right. we're more of that area where smoke would be High. way above going from here to there so you know riding with the delta wind uh down south right. and so we we didn't have you know smoke tank issues per se right. issues in lodi luckily you know knock on wood because <laughs> we don't have forested areas right next to us we have a delta right. delta breezes yeah right. so yeah lodi's been lucky yeah, in that sense, you know, nothing to burn, right? Yeah, well, the, the peach starts to burn, and that adds another flavor. Yeah. <laughs> That's called scotch, right? Yeah. Really nice. Yeah. Great, great to see you. Same here. Pleasure. Yeah. 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 Hey, thanks. Yeah. Really enjoyable. Well, Greg, since I'm now revisiting the the Sanso, and we kind of talked about that savory, kind of smoky, venison, meaty kind of thing, I. I wanted to ask you about yeast, but I almost didn't want to ask you about yeast because I've heard you um, talk Nat, before and natter, it's, natter on for hours. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, I don't think we can talk long enough, but, but just briefly, maybe give a little of your philosophy on, on um, inoculation versus um, a wild yeast. Well, uh, no. yeah. Inoculation is always the safest route to go. It It's re reliable. It finishes properly. It doesn't get beaten up by other stuff. Whereas when you're um, not inoculating, just about anything can happen and oftentimes does. But <clears throat> when you don't inoculate, and I just 
gave a talk back at the Eastern Technical Symposium on this. I can send you a copy of my PowerPoint if you'd like. If, and I think you've heard you say, if you ever need, if you ever need, if you have trouble sleeping at night. It's very soporific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But basically wild ferments are, have been shown to produce uh, more esters and aromas and there is more complexity in those. Uh, they might not have as strong of a fruit component as a yeast that you might select and choose, but right. you get more complexity and layers and layers. And yeah. I don't want my wines to be pow, you know, like a fruit riot in the mouth, right. although that's fun. Comic book. Yeah. yeah. I, I really, as I'm getting older, I'm looking yeah. for more gentility and complexity, yeah. not just in my life, but in my grapes. And I think that wines should uh, reflect the people who make them. So when I was an angry young man, I made angry young Pinots, for instance, yeah. like out at Flowers, these big wonkin <laughs> things. But that was like showing people that you could uh, teach the dog to speak, you know, to bark. Now I want to teach it how to elocute, to really say something about a region or a site. I don't just want to yeah. make Zinfandel. I want to make royalty Lodi Zinfandel. And... I also more now more than ever want to interact with the people with whom I'm making the wines. That's really important to me. I live on, on, on the vineyard that I farm. My grandkids are growing up on it and some of my best friends are there. I want to give a shout out to Evan Damiano who uh, couldn't be here. He had to attend some other to some other stuff, but um, all of these people have become really important to me. And so winemaking itself has become much more than just making wine. When I was a kid or a young man, I thought that my life was in service to the grape. But as I'm getting older, I'm finding that the grape is in service to my life and giving me a really great life. And for people who are out there listening, I'd like to say thank you for, from all of us hose draggers for, uh, for enjoying fine wines and, and buying our product so that we can keep doing what we love to do. And I promise you that all of us hose hounds and, and hose jockeys are, are going to make wine that you love and comment to us, send us comments and tell us what it is that you like or don't like and how you'd like to see us move because winemaking is a very interactive thing. And one of the best things I like to see and hear is from people who are really enjoying the wines or who maybe have some opinions about how things could be a little bit different. Um, that's, that's now the important thing for me. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Well, you, you said gentility and my, I'm a deadhead as yeah. we talked about. And it, I, the lyrics to, I need a miracle popped into my head uh the first first verse i need a woman about twice my age i need a lady of nobility gentility and rage a splendor in the dark a lightning on the draw who go right through the book and break each and every law and that sounds kind of like <laughs> where you've where you've landed in this you know career of yours greg yeah and, and that's why i'm also a deadhead or i'm not a, <laughs> quite a deadhead but i'm a fan All right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah I, i've attended a couple of concerts so okay. yeah <laughs> i'm strictly uh American Beauty and a Working Man's Dead. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's my classic album right there, man. There you go, Ripple. <laughs> well, you guys, let's let's. Uh, we, you know, what we haven't said once is how you get these freaking wines. Well, 
It sounds like or there's not really a lot of you're them. Not, I don't. <laughs> oh, and Randy's book. Well, we have a copy of Randy's book. <laughs> I need the. We need the the uh, the French well, Columbard, really. Yeah, I'll, I'll get you some of that. The Lodi book is easy. Amazon. <laughs> Lodi exclamation point. Yeah, but I also have my own website. Is and it's called Kitchen Cinco C I N C O uh, Press, and and if you buy from there. I get a little more out of it. Right. I don't have and to Jeff give Jeff Bezos uh, 60%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, so, and so the wine, obviously, you just go to Marshall. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Marshall Wines, M-A-R-C-H-E-L-L-E wines.com. And that's the best way to get a hold of our wines because we really aren't, we're so small. We, we're just, you're not going to find us in big box stores. Right. So, and, and if you go on there right now, some of these wines are available for, because people listen to the show, shout out Travis Barkley, who went and bought all the Monterio sellers he could find. People listen to the show all over the country and then try and order the wine. So if you went on right now, you'd be able to get some of these wines on the website. Uh, you bet. Okay. I, I'm not sure that the family cuvee is on there yet, but if it's not now, it will be in the next yeah, few days. I'll make no sure. Label. Yeah, <laughs> right. you, you have until Friday. This is this is Wednesday morning. You have until Friday morning when the show drops. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Kevin know. We'll okay. put it on the list. <laughs> well, as you guys can see out there, I think you've noticed over the last year that the talk about Lodi has gotten um, a little more fervor. There's a little more buzz going on. Um, that this a lot of that's thanks to the guy sitting uh, right here at the table. This right? is this is one of those areas that you're going to see a lot more um, people asking for wines from Lodi. Um, so we're here. What we're here saying today is here you go. <laughs> um, try some of these wines. I mean, you want to see what's unique, Pelegos. what's different about uh, these wines. The, here's your opportunity. <laughs> yeah, and and. and to credit to Randy's book, if you want to learn about the growers and the winemakers, um, you can go deep on the book. Um, uh, and the book is beautiful, Randy. Yeah, thank you. I definitely distracted myself during the uh, Perlegos interviews, flipping through and not paying attention. <laughs> the ADH, the pretty pictures got me. <laughs> so, um, and it, it is true, though, that Lodi wines are everywhere, but, you know, there you is... More. There's a, a commercial style that's out on in the big box stores and the supermarkets. And uh, but the handcraft stuff, you go to individual producers such as Marshall or you mentioned Montreal or Sandlands and, yeah. uh, and Turley. Uh, those are all the handcraft styles. Best yet, go on out to Lodi. And uh, meet some of those uh, multi-generational families who many of these growers who have been around since the 1850s or 1860s now own wineries and they own most of the wineries out there. And uh, which that's what makes Lodi a little unusual is that uh, it is a place where kind of like what Napa and Sonoma used to be where you, if you walked in, you know, the guy who might be pouring the wine for you to taste could be the owner or and, the, and, or the and, grape grower or the or, or the wine maker and there's and there's things there's there's yeah. new exciting restaurants and things to do in lodi i mean lodi for a number of years has definitely been on the uptick it's it's not just a uh, a farming town anymore yeah, you, yeah. is that I mean, fair it's, to say it's one of those little old towns and 
and uh, God forbid, in another twenty years, it'll be like Hillsburg or right. so. Right. <laughs> but uh, good for property values. Yeah, bad, uh, for, bad for bad for. Hopefully, I'll be dead and gone by then. <laughs> but it's still, yeah, it's it's a farming town still, yeah. and where you do find some nice restaurants right. too. I mean, What's the Guan Guan? Guan, Guantonios. Guantonios. Everybody's. Yeah, that's pizzas and salads. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the, but the best fresh. pizzas in California. Everybody's like talking about Guant. Gotta get out there. I can't eat pizza anyway, but. <laughs> but I think maybe part of the reason people would want to go is is not because of nice restaurants or hotels. It's to go because we hear people here in the tasting room every day talk about, oh, how Sonoma and Napa used to be. And, right and the good old and, right and so head out to lodi and see and and like you How said you meet some real people who are making some good um honest wines from their properties and 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 wax poetic that, um, that is a good reason to go yeah you know well you you get a let's not bit, turn it into hillsburg uh, yeah you yeah. get the as as uh greg mentioned you know so you get some real people yeah, it's still farmers. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a farming region still. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not it's not a winery region. It's a farming right. region. So, which is weird. But <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. But you know, the last time I drove through Lodi, I was pleasantly surprised with how many like you could pull in, go taste wine. You know, like a trail of of tasting rooms and wineries with tasting rooms, right. just like right. you know, um, more than you know I think I anticipated. So definitely come to Sonoma also. But go check out Lodi on your next your next California wine trip. Yeah, I might mention that uh, the Lodi Wine Center on Turner Road is probably a good place for people to get more information and, and right. start discovering. Yeah, because cool. there you they have a, a good sampling of a lot of Lodi wines, and that's and that place, the Lodi uh, Visitor Center, is is owned by the Lodi Wine Grape Commission. And so, if you heard about Lodi, a lot of it is because of the work which I do work for. Uh, the Lodi Wine Grape Commission, and that consists of about 750 grape growers. Uh, it's not a winery association. It's a grape growers association. Right. Yeah, but because it's a large wine region, you know, we're probably the best funded uh, uh, um, wine uh, regional association in the capita. state <laughs> because right. we have so many darn growers. <laughs> and it's not like you you you're all you have a choice too if you grow grapes in lodi you have to belong to the lodi wine grape commission it's voted in and then once it's voted in you know you got to pay your taxes <laughs> and so but we're, we're we've been working hard um i do the freelance work for them and we work hard to you know uh, let the rest of the world know about this place and thanks for sharing the wines all the ones. <laughs> we had we have to close with Oh boy. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, Creed and Clearwater. Thank you guys for coming today. That's the best Thanks. song. <laughs> yeah. That really is. Thanks for doing what you guys do. That's cool. uh I, it means a lot to someone like me to do what I get to do because of what you guys do. So thank you. Absolutely. We're glad we got to make connection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No load eye. Oh yeah. <laughs>